We are kicking off our Advent season with a series of messages on the word joy. If you look on the front of your bulletin, you'll see a bulb, but the, the only problem with uh, the, the theme and the thing that you're getting, the message you're getting from that, that particular picture is that it's sort of eclipsed by darkness. And I sometimes think that you can't appreciate uh, the full significance of what joy means without having gone through some kind of deep trial. I know that there are many of us in the room who've been in those dark valleys and when we came up out of them, there was just a season of celebration. As a pastor, I've seen people who have been in those dark valleys for a while and then they said, you know what? It's leading me to think about God a little bit more. And as a result of that, some of those people will end up coming to church and they'll be saying, I am so grateful for God taking me out of that darkness and giving me a sense of hope. I want to learn more. But what's discouraging for me as a pastor sometimes is sometimes that sticks and sometimes it doesn't. When that sort of despair is overshadowed with a sense of joy because they've had a breakthrough, that is awesome. But the luster begins to wear off sometimes and the significance of the event that drove them to God no longer weighs heavily in their imaginations and they begin to kind of fade away. And I think about that because I know that that really is a temptation for any of us unless we have in the back of our minds a deeply traumatic story that was life-changing and defining. Now, I would never wish trauma on anybody, but if you've ever gone through it, you know the effect that it has on you. Something happened that was an episode in your life that was a defining moment, and it could have been something very ugly and and deeply personal, or it could have been something that was through no fault of your own, but yet circumstances uh, happened in such a way that it broke you, or it could be something that you yourself were involved in or complicit in, And you began to reap the full weight of the consequences. And you're like, yeah, I know. I've put myself in this predicament. And there's no way out. But I don't know if if your story parallels mine in that way. But I've I've got my own things that uh, lead me to the reason why I'm here. And And I do rehearse them periodically when I start to forget why. But for God's people, whenever we are going into the storyline of the Bible, the parallel is really no different. And one of the reasons I think the Bible is so perennial that people uh, year after year, decade after decade, even century after century will say it is the go-to is because when you are going through a difficult time and you open up the Bible there is sort of a a me too moment that you have because you're looking at the story of a person in another part of the world at a different place and time with a different set of technologies and yet their heart is in that same place that your heart is. And you read the Bible and you're like, dang, their situation really isn't a whole lot different than mine. And I think that's why the Bible just continues to go on. Because it, at the deepest layer of your life and mine, has a voice that when we're not distracted, or we're not disoriented, or we're not just off on our own, and we're hurting, it speaks to us at that deep level. And so when 
Jesus was getting ready to come into the world and the prophet said prior to that the people living in darkness have seen a great light. And then there was uh, just a, a fairly young girl who was of marriageable age who discovered one evening that she was visited by divine beings and they said, fear not because you are about to be the one who will deliver the one who is our hope into the world. And if you can just put yourself into Mary's place and try to think about the significance of that moment, you can appreciate why she burst out in song about how the mighty ones, the powerful rulers who've oppressed us for so long are going to be destroyed. And those who have been broken and who have been hopeless and who have been looking for deepest answers to their deepest needs will find them in this child. That's what she was thinking. But I still don't think we fully appreciate why she thought that. And at the risk of, 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 of boring you today, I want to take you to a place that was in the backdrop of the minds of people like Mary and her fellow countrymen, especially faithful people that were God-fearing. And they were asking the question, God, when is it going to happen? And it wasn't a new question. They've been asking it for a very long time. And some of them even felt sort of abandoned by God because they'd been asking it for so long. But others were hanging on because they knew that God was trustworthy. Matter of fact, the imagination of the people who were asking that question vividly remembered the trauma, not that they experienced, but their own people had experienced 600 years prior. Now, that's a long time. I mean, this country has only been around half that amount of time at best. But if you go back 600 years in the minds of the Hebrew people who became Jewish who would say, I am the son of so-and-so who begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. Have you ever read the first chapters of the book of Matthew? And it's like, oh man, why are we having to learn about all these people? They don't mean anything to me. But to them they did. And you know why? Because they remembered a time, collectively, when they were, the, they were the it, they were the end all, they were the be all. They were the country that other peoples looked to and said, that country has game. And it was a country that was being led by a person named Solomon who was sitting on the throne of his father David. And when Solomon had established his throne, the known world power at that time was the nation of Israel. Everybody looked to them and said, if you really want to know who the powerful country is, the people that are on the cutting edge of everything that's moving forward, it's those guys. And Solomon had massive projects that he was building infrastructure. I get pretty excited about that stuff. He was building an infrastructure of, 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 of um, roads and communities and public venues and gardens and all of those things, which was... Uh, in, the, in the minds of people at that time in our human development, it was pretty substantial. So much so that there was a person who was from a former world power uh, named Sheba who said, I need to go and check out this Solomon guy because the things I'm hearing are too, really, they're too mind-boggling to believe. And she went and she realized that not only was he the man in the world at that time, not only was this country that he had been responsible for helping to develop um, very compelling but this guy was incredibly wise 
And so on every level, they were firing on all cylinders. But after he was done, it just started to go like this. So much so that about 400 years later, after a succession of kings who were trying to replicate what had happened in the glory days, had done their own thing, but did so in a way that led the people away from God rather than closer, it started to fall apart. And the humiliation of it all was when their king at the time had been subject to a Babylonian emperor named Nebuchadnezzar who was being charitable to that king. He said, you do what you got to do, but I'm in charge now, you're not. And Zedekiah kind of pushed back a little bit. And so Nebuchadnezzar told him, I want to put your, your sons out in front of you, and then I'm going I'm to kill them all. And then I'm going to gouge your eyes out so that the last thing that you see is that the blood of your children on the ground. And not only that, I'm going to carry you off in chains to Nineveh, which 400 years from Solomon was the end all and be all. It was the most powerful country in the world. And as I'm just thinking about that, I, I want to pause for a second because I, you know, I think about our country. And I, I read a statistic um, a while back talking about how economically powerful our country is. And I don't know how accurate it is, but, but just to put a little perspective on it, the statistics said that our, 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 our average GDP is $16 trillion, which may not mean a whole lot because you think about that and you say, I, I can't even wrap my mind around $16 million or 1000 And when that number is given, it's given in relation to China, who is only like around... 10 or, 12, 10 or 11 trillion dollars. Substantially lesser than you would think it would be. And then our former adversary, the Soviet Union, which is now Russia, has a GDP of just half of what we have. And you, you do the math and you say, we're a pretty country still. We're, we're still top of the food chain. And despite everything that's going on, we're going to be a pretty hard country to knock off. And I think some people feel like that it'll, it'll never happen. That we don't have anything to worry about in this country even though we've got so much despair and fear and hopelessness and godlessness. Interestingly enough, that's exactly where the nation of Israel was when they were carted off to Babylon. And there's a historian who's looked at different civilizations over time, and he went on to say that I've counted 21 known civilizations up to this point in history, and all of them had their rise and then their fall. And the United States and the accompanying Western world, they're the 22nd. And if the pattern repeats itself over again, guess what? Your moment's going to come and go as well. Now that's sort of a sobering thought, isn't it? Because who could imagine that would happen here? Who could imagine somebody in some form coming to our country and going to all of our national monuments, going to our most outstanding 
uh, governmental buildings that represent um, justice and lawmaking and, um, and executive power and just annihilating them. Can you imagine the absolute horror of that happening five, ten years down the road? I mean, it's a little sobering to try to wrap your mind around, and there's a lot of us that are thinking we're too big to fail. But there's also a lot of us in church as individuals who thought at one time, I'm too big to fail. And yet here we are, probably a lot of us, because we found out that we fail and we fail often. And there are times when it's so bad, we need help beyond what we're capable of, 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 of responding to in our hour of need. And so a lot of us will say, I'm not too big to fail. Matter of fact, in the broad scheme of things, I need a savior. And countries are the same way. And the nation of Israel was of that mind. We're kind of too big to fail until one day they wake up and they realize that when they, look at the, when they look at all the buildings that used to be in the former glory, it's gone and all you see are ashes. Well, you're probably thinking, Pastor, where are you going with this? Well, in the imagination of ourselves, it's, it's a distant journey. But for somebody like Mary and people like her, they were saying, it's still pretty fresh. We can still see places on the ground where things burned and things were destroyed. We can still see within our range of vision the rubble. So with that said, if we can, I'm going to show a video of exactly what I'm talking about and hopefully in a way that it makes sense. Toward the end of the 7th century BCE, the Babylonian Empire quickly conquers the lands to the west of the Euphrates River, including the Kingdom of Judah. When King Jehoiakim of Judah tries to rebel against Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar quashes the rebellion and exiles the rulers and generals. Just 10 years later, Jehoiakim's brother Zedekiah, the new king of Judah, rebels again against the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar is furious. He decides to teach Judah a lesson it will never forget. On the 10th of Tevet, 588 BCE, he arrives at the walls of Jerusalem with a huge army and besieges the city. Standing by the northern wall of the city. This tower, known as the Israelite Tower, was uncovered by Professor Nachman Avigad in 1970. From the top of the tower, Zedekiah's soldiers watched in fear as hundreds of thousands of Babylonian archers, horsemen, and infantrymen stood before the walls. From here, they saw the Babylonian Engineering Corps close in on the city and lay siege to it. Cut off from the fields outside the walls, the people of Jerusalem now have no source of food. Hunger affects everybody, especially the children. The tongue of the suckling child cleaves to the roof of his mouth for thirst. The young children ask for bread, and no one breaks it for them. 
Corpses pile up in the streets and disease rages. As the siege drags on, fear and desperation grow. The harvest is past, summer has ended, and we are not saved. The terror reaches its peak when the Babylonian battering rams advance toward the walls and begin to pound them. The noise is deafening. The earth trembles. Soon the conquering forces will break through the defenses and the city will be lost. Just at this most critical moment, King Zedekiah decides to abandon the battle. Along with his soldiers, he sneaks through alleys under cover of night and escapes through the southern gate to the Kidron Valley and then from there to the desert. And it came to pass that when King Zedekiah of Judah and all the men of war saw them, they fled and went out of the city by night by way of the king's garden, by the gate between the two walls, and he went out by way of the plain. Zedekiah can't escape his fate. Soon afterwards, on the plains of Jericho, he is caught by the Babylonians and cruelly punished by Nebuchadnezzar. Meanwhile, the Babylonian army increases its pressure on the northern gate. Right here, near the tower adjacent to the city gate, a fierce battle takes place. Babylonian archers shoot thousands of arrows at the Israelite defenders, providing cover for the Babylonian infantry as they charge the city gate. The Israelite defenders fire back with all their might. Beneath the layer of ash here, Professor Nachman Avigad uncovered arrowhead shot by Babylonian archers, right next to Israelite arrowhead shot by Zedekiah's soldiers in their desperate attempt to repel the enemy. Despite their efforts, the Israelite soldiers, hungry and exhausted, cannot stop the powerful, organized troops spread out before them. On the 9th of Tammuz, 586 BCE, after more than a year and a half under siege, the northern wall is breached and the Babylonian army bursts into the city. The Babylonian soldiers slaughter the people of the city and wreak destruction everywhere. The cries of pain of the victims, many of them women, children, and the elderly, are heard from every corner. But Jerusalem will suffer its most deadly blow a month later. On the 7th of Av, Nebuzaradan, the Babylonian commander, arrives in Jerusalem and orders it razed to the ground. And in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great man's house, he burned with fire. Here in the royal compound in the city of David, among buildings that collapsed in the horrific fire, archaeologist Igal Shiloh uncovers a thick layer of black ash. It turns out to be the destruction layer of Jerusalem. The diggers' faces are black with the soot and dirt that covered the ruins from the burnt buildings. Excitedly, the excavators unearthed 2,600-year-old buildings, one after another. They also discovered eating utensils, furniture, and seals, all buried under the ash of the Great Fire. In the sweltering summer of 586 BCE, all of Jerusalem is set ablaze. 
on the ninth of Av, the temple, the symbol of the spiritual covenant between the Israelites and their God, goes up in flames. From that terrible day until now, the ninth of Av has been a day of intense mourning for the entire Jewish people. Nebuchadnezzar finishes off the destruction with an act that will ensure that Jerusalem will never rebel again. He raises the city walls to their foundations. Now, their heads bowed, the exiles march to Babylon, carrying musical instruments among their meager possessions. But the melody that played in Jerusalem through countless turbulent days is now silenced. In its place arise the hushed tones of the exiles' lament. By the rivers of Let's go ahead and, and stop it there if we can. Now, hopefully where, where we're at right now in the story is something that is, has captured your attention a little bit because it is a story that for generation after generation in a slower time when people, whenever they were, for example, settling in Ohio and farther out west, uh, stories would be told about the books that they carried with them. And there were a few of them. One of them was, of course, the Bible. Another one was the McGuffey Readers, which is an educational curriculum. And another one would be the Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, a story about a man named Christian and his journeys. And then another one might be Homer with the uh, Odyssey and the Iliad. And those books shaped the imagination of the people that settled in this area. And they revisited those stories because they knew that even though the times and the places and the circumstances were different, the things going on in the hearts of the people there and the relationships that they had with each other were almost parallel. So much so that when people settled here and they established churches and began to allow that story to shape their imagination... It really was a deep layer of our country and our national identity. And it had a lot to say about how we lived our lives out. But I would venture to say that that deep layer is sort of eroding right now. That it doesn't have the same place in the hearts and the imaginations of people anymore. I think the lack of people in churches is a representation of the fact that it's no longer important or relevant. And as you look at that layer, you realize that there is something to that layer that is so rich and so critical for life here on earth. It is a layer that says what we do, we do in relation to God and in the name of God. And so when you look back into the history of the settling of our country, sure, there are lots of injustices, no question. But there were a lot of people who had in the back of their imaginations this story, these stories. And if you think I'm just making this up, how many of you ever heard of a town called Busiris, Ohio? Anybody? Anybody ever been there? Anybody know why it's called Busiris? I mean, that's a weird name, isn't it? Well, it has something to do with that story, which I'll get into in a minute, because I don't want to get ahead of myself. As this, this is unfolding, and people in Mary's time, and the birth of Jesus is getting ready to happen, this is really vivid. Because the language that they learned in Babylon was the language that they carried with them for 400 years. It was called Aramaic. It wasn't the old Hebrew. It was the same letters. You saw the characters. But it was a little bit different way of saying it. Maybe, maybe kind of like parallel to English and Spanish, perhaps. But maybe a little bit more Spanglish. 
And as they were settled in that environment, they had a sense of hopelessness that things would never get right. But it got worse. Because people had a vivid memory collectively of the glory days. You know, when we were a world power, when the Queen of Sheba came, of all people, when Solomon had these wise sayings that were recorded. And it was, it was deep in the minds of the people at that time. So how ironic was it whenever they got hauled off into Babylon, Nineveh, Babylon, along with everybody else that made up some kind of a has-been country around them also being brought up. Because Nebuchadnezzar said this, I'm not going to destroy you or your country or even your monuments. I'm going to keep them all intact. But I'm going to co-opt them and I'm going to build my kingdom around all of these things that have already been built. And I'm going to build even more. So I need to keep you alive so you can do work for me in my great big expansionist infrastructure project. Of making roads and buildings and civic centers and even the beautiful hanging gardens of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. The seventh wonder of the world at the known time. It was, it was something to behold. I mean, if you look at the development of collective humanity in cities up to that moment, this was the peak. But I'll tell you why it was so bitter for these guys. It was because of the understanding that they had of their God versus the God of Nebuchadnezzar. See, in the middle of the city was something akin to the, the pyramids. It was a big mound that was seven stories high that had tiers where you had representations of different layers of connecting to the deity that would be represented at the top. And so there would be priests lining up on these different tiers and at the top would be a representation of Nineveh's God, Marduk. Which means nothing to anybody here in the room except for the fact that in the minds of the people in that time, Marduk was obviously stronger than the Jehovah God of the Hebrew people. Because look where they're at and look where he's at. And Nebuchadnezzar gave all of the credit to his success to the power of Marduk working through him. And see, Marduk had his own story. You know, you read the Bible and there's a storyline. And it tells us a lot about who we are and where we came from. They had their own story. And it was a lot more violent and a lot more vicious. And a lot more, for lack of a better way of saying it, PG-13, uh, incestuous. And it involved, the story involved parents being murdered by their children. And in the outcome of their narrative of how they looked at the creation of the world, they said... Essentially what it boils down to now is we have a God. His name is Marduk who emerged out of that. And the people that are the divine representatives, kings and such, they have the image of God. They are representatives. They have divinity embedded in their veins. But when that king looks out at everybody else, they just called him the blackheads. Which meant that these were people that just had dark hair and you just saw them. But here's the thing. They didn't count for nothing. They just were people who were there to serve the interests of those who bore the image of God. The king and queen and the royal establishment. And so if we were there, we were just disposable. 
Now, I know I'm drilling down into this maybe farther than you're hoping, but I hope that it gets into your mind as well because it does matter. When the Hebrew people were settling in, Nebuchadnezzar and some other people said, you know what I like about you Hebrew people? You're pretty good with music. You play the harp like nobody else. And we need some good music around here. Would you guys mind taking some of those old songs that you used to sing and you would play to the harp, you know, and you would offer to your God? Would you mind taking some of those songs and rewriting them so that we can listen to that beautiful music and it can be sort of a, a celebration of our God? And if you're not up to that, then just play your songs so that we can enjoy them. Now imagine that happening to you. You've just had everything that was sacred to you ripped out from underneath you. You've had people that were near and dear to you violated, murdered, unimaginable things happening. And now they're saying this. We're in control now. You are not. And we need to hear some music. So if you ever read the Psalms, they're pretty vivid in their candor. They'll tell you what they think, and um, they don't pull any punches. So here's what was written about this experience. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy, remember, Lord, what the Edomites did. And this is where you just see a dark cast start to happen in the writer of the psalm. Remember what they did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear down its foundations. Daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. <laughs> That's in the Bible. Uh, and it's not a happy psalm, is it? But it's basically how deep this went. It was so deep and so painful and so traumatic but all they could think about is just murdering and brutalizing the infants of the people that destroyed their world. That's a dark time. Because you know, it's one thing to have people do dark things to you. It's another thing for you to harbor that same darkness in your own heart. Because then you become complicit in the whole, the whole um, tapestry of darkness, if you could say that. You're one of the actors in a dark play. And the people really felt that. Well, for 400 years, they went from Babylonians to the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and they're thinking, is this ever going to reset itself? And I think a lot of us can relate to the experience on a personal level because we have had long seasons where we're saying, God, where are you? Why is this happening? What did I do to deserve this? 
And when are you going to show up? And when they were up on the ziggurat and they were playing their own music and the Hebrew people are down here, there was a group of them who said, God, we know this doesn't make any sense. We're, our minds are just confused beyond belief. But we're still hanging on. And there was a group of people that said, no matter what, we're with you. Because we know that you're real, we know that you're trustworthy, and we know that in due time, you're going to sort this mess out. We didn't get into this mess overnight, and we're probably not going to get out of it overnight. And some of the people were perceptive enough to know that the reason why we were in this mess wasn't because Nebuchadnezzar had this great big campaign in mind to take on the world. It was a little more subtle than that. It was because we decided the three things that we have that we can dedicate to something, our time, our energy, and our attention, are going to be devoted elsewhere than our God. And for them, it, it was just a lesser God. They found ways of sort of ignoring the God that brought them into being in the first place. They found ways of just distracting themselves with entertainment. They found ways if they looked at the Sabbath and then they looked at the other six days, they could honestly say, I'll give God a couple of hours in the Sabbath, but you know what, the rest of the time, I'm off in places that are completely, actually opposite to what we do at the temple. And what God saw was where you spend your time, your energy, and your attention, the most is a pretty good indicator of who your God is, really is, at the ground level. And they weren't too interested for a very long time. And God said, hey, it's like any relationship, you know. If you're not interested in me, I'll just step back. I'm interested in you, but I get, the, I, I get your drift. And so he backed off, and like anything... We're religious people. Nature abhors a vacuum. They started worshiping whatever they could to fill that void. And eventually, it just, they just unraveled from the inside. There's a part of me that wonders if this great country that's based on a beautiful social contract is one of these days just going to unravel from the inside. And it won't be anymore. But there's a part of me that says there's a layer to this whole thing. And there's a remnant of people here who say we will not forsake our God even though all this stuff is happening outside of us and around us. We will not let go. Because we know this God is trustworthy. And in due time, He will hear our prayers. And He'll make us whole. Well, He told the Israelites, don't get in a big hurry to return because it's going to be 70 years, he told him through the prophet Jeremiah. So while you're there, build some houses. Establish yourself. Become a kingdom outpost where you are. And so a lot of people took him up on it. But it was bitter to see that big, hulking, seven-story pyramid in the middle of the city square. And the God that represented it, which was so offensive to their notion of who God is. And they had to look at it every day, day in and day out. And they're like, this isn't right. This is not right. And Nebuchadnezzar's saying, look what we built. Look what I built. 
hey, it's all me. And Marduk, of course. And basically, a little bit of too big to fail invaded too much of his brain. And then he had his own problems. In the name of a person who showed up one day named Cyrus. Beautiful Cyrus. You know why they call him Beautiful Cyrus? It's because he's the one who's not even an Israelite and he's not a Babylonian. He's coming from Persian. But he's the one God said, I dealt with you through Babylon. Now I'm going to deal with Babylon through him. And when he's finished with them, there won't be anything left. But keep this in mind. He's postured favorably towards you. And believe it or not, as pagan as he is, he sees something in you and he wants to feed it. So he had a friend named Nehemiah, friend named Ezra, and a few other people. And he said, let's go back to Jerusalem and try to reset this thing again. And so Cyrus took what was an impossible situation in the minds of God's people and he was used as an instrument to settle the books. And so people thought about Cyrus in a very favorable light. And even when they settled in Ohio, they're like, you know, this guy, he stands out in the biblical story. Let's name our city Boo Cyrus. Let's name our city Beautiful Cyrus. Only that doesn't work, so we're going to call it Boo Cyrus. Because everybody knows the story. But here's the thing. Nobody reads the Bible anymore. Nobody cares. Nobody reads the story. I'm not talking about you guys, but it's not front and center anymore. It's not a defining book anymore. And therein lies the problem. Because if we do believe that the darkness has seen a wonderful light, and that light is actually defined by the vision of who Jesus is, and that Jesus is actually a game changer for all of history, then we've got something, we've got something to share, to tell, to live out. We have to be the people in a dark world that show enough of the light of the God who we reflect that people when they see us they see him and maybe the breakdown has been we haven't done a very good job of that and so we got to readdress it and say how can we become those people once again because the darkness is taking over fast the fear is running high the anxiety and the uncertainty are looming all over the place. And people wonder. And so while we're settled here, we build homes, we become an out, outpost, we represent the kingdom of God in a place that doesn't know that God so much anymore. And so this candle that we look at today represents... A story that goes way back in the imagination of God's people. And when they were waiting for a Messiah, they were waiting for somebody to come and say, when is it going to be enough? When is this thing going to be put back into the right order? 
They were more than ready. And then Jesus came. And the hope that was promised for so long was now a reality for people to cling to in an even deeper way. You see, all that the Israelites had in Babylon was a story that was embedded with promises that God would one day show up and make it right. And then when that day came, how did he come? He didn't come as Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't come as Cyrus. He came as a baby. A baby, for crying out loud. What in the world are you up to, God? Did it make a difference? Why do we use the words B.C., A.D.? Why do we use, even if you're secular in your mind, mind, B.C.E., before the common era? Who was the initiator of the common era? One Galilean peasant who would seemingly not have a significant life here on earth, but for whatever reason, he was a complete and total wild card game changer. He was a surprise. He came out of nowhere and all of a sudden he's redefining everything. And the people who saw it saw the light. And the people who didn't just said, business as usual, don't see nothing here. But you know what that light sees? And this is where I'm going to end it. I know I've taken too much time of your time. You know that layer of ash that defines that moment 586 in Jerusalem. That memory that is still intact. Probably some of us have our own layer of ash. Where we're like, that was when it went south. And that is when I knew it was hopeless. Or that was when I'm like, it's game over. Or that was the defining moment when everything that meant something to me was lost. And you can't unring that bell. I think I'm not, I can only speak for myself, but I have that layer of burned ash. And I don't forget it. Because it keeps me coming back every Sunday. It reminds me of something that was hopeless that became so hopeful because Jesus was the game changer. Now maybe your damage isn't that bad. But from God's point of view, you're more broken than you realize and more in need of a Savior than you know. And perhaps just hearing the story provides some clarity for you. Perhaps God is going a little deeper and just bringing that conviction that my words can't except through his enabling. But whatever the case may be, we're starting this out in the realm of darkness so you can see just what it is that made the light so significant. Because I honestly believe that when I come to understand something, almost always, it's always in relation to something else. It's almost by comparison to something else. Probably whenever I was young, I didn't know much and I didn't understand much. But now that I've gone through a lot of ups and downs in life, a lot of failures, a lot of wins, a lot of scars, you tend to see a little more clearly the significance of things against that backdrop. And maybe God is telling you right now, 
Those scars are there so that you can have a point of comparison between what they meant to you and what a Savior can mean to you in contrast to them. I'm hoping nobody has to have any more scars than they need. But oftentimes, if you're like me, on the one hand, somebody says, a word to the wise is sufficient. On the other hand, I can tell you, most of the things I've learned, I've learned through the school of hard knocks, because I'm just not very quick. Yet I'm deeply appreciative. And so I just am asking the Lord to speak to our hearts this Advent season so that the hope that we talk about isn't just a going through the motions hope, but it is a hope that can come alive in each of your hearts. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you for giving us a historical narrative that repeats itself in so many different forms all the way into each of our lives. That we can take away from it things that Help us to see you more clearly. And I pray for everyone here that the things that have been spoken today would be embedded in our hearts, our imaginations, in our spirits, so that we can see the true value of what it is that's been accomplished on our behalf. And we can worship you with a new richness out of a profound appreciation and love for the one who first loved us. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room, as they've reflected perhaps on their own dark layer, will see what you mean in light of that. And just thank you, Father, as you work in our hearts and as we surrender to you in Jesus' name. Amen.